Welcome to another installment of the New England Quarterly Podcast Series. I am Linda Rhodes, NEQ's editor, and I am happy to introduce a conversation about Henry David Thoreau. Thoreau was the topic of Andrew Menard's recent NEQ essay, Nationalism and the Nature of Thoreau's Walking. Andrew has written two other essays for NEQ and is the author of the book, Sight Unseen, How Fremont's First Expedition Changed the American Landscape. His conversation partner is Laura Dassau-Walls, professor of English and in the graduate program in the history of science at Notre Dame University. Laura is the author of several books, the most pertinent to today's topic being Seeing New Worlds, Henry David Thoreau and 19th Century Natural Science. She is also, I am delighted to say, an editor of NEQ. I invite you to listen in on a fascinating exchange. Walking is one of Thoreau's best-known and most-loved essays, uh, right up there with Walden and Civil Disobedience. Thoreau opens it by saying that he wishes to speak a word for nature, for absolute freedom and wildness. And it truly is his most eloquent statement about the wild, a foundational document for the American environmental movement. Yet, Andrew, you're also suggesting something more, that it's Thoreau's most original essay on nationhood and national culture. This is really interesting. So, Thoreau worked on this essay and added to it for over a decade, and it was one of the very last things he finished uh, as he knew he was dying, so it's kind of a last will and testament to us today. All of this means he put a lot of thinking into this essay over a lot of his lifetime, so there's lots of layers to it, and some of them even seem a little contradictory. So, Andrew, can we start by talking about some of these contradictions? So, for instance... Uh, the essay we have, Walking, was originally two separate lectures, one titled Walking and the other titled The Wild. Clearly, Thoreau put these together because he thinks they're deeply related. So what does he mean by walking? Uh, why is walking his keyword, his point of entry? Well, I, I guess I begin by saying that I think virtually all his work exists as a series of ands you know, art and science, Concord and the Maine Woods, walking and the wild. Hey. Uh, remember in his journal, he, he talked about his two commonplace books, one for facts, one for poetry. That's an right. and. Um, even when and, he's talking and, about something as simple as a river, he's sort of toggling between describing its muddy or rocky bottom and its reflective surface, you know, and, and they sort of exclude each other, but he keeps toggling back and forth. I think it was really sensitive to the idea of intervals. He uses that word in walking, too. And he seemed to set up these juxtapositions so that he could endlessly oscillate between them, never reducing one side to the other and never settling on one side or the other. The trouble is, it makes it kind of hard to figure out what he's getting at sometimes. You know exactly how he relates walking to the wild or or both walking in the wild to the west or what he means by any of them. There is, um, right, there's a kind of both-and quality, and it's as right. if we want to hold them both in our minds, not choose between them, but somehow, even if they feel incompatible, they're still Keep them in mind at the same time. Yeah, yeah. It's However, I, d- I do think there are a number of overlaps among the words. For one thing, I think they can all be seen as, as a more perfect version of Anglo-Americanism. 
which may be the most important reason to, to see the essay as, a, as something on nationhood, especially as an addendum to civil disobedience where he laments the lack of a, of a more perfect nation or state. I think the very all... end of civil disobedience, yes, the, the the glorious state that he never sees, right? That he cannot never see seen anywhere, yet. right? Right. I think they all represent a transgression of uh, boundaries, you know, and in that sense, a kind of criticism of property, and and also because you know the aesthetics is so important of landscape conventions, which many of which can be traced to property relations. Right. Um, right. I think they emphasize the importance of phenomenology and experience. And maybe the most important here, um, they're all linguistic constructions in a way. You know, like, as you said, he begins the essay with, I wish to speak a word for nature. And then when he starts to define walking, he, he begins with an etym- a sort of fanciful etymology of walking. And then right. he later says, I wish the West of which I speak is but another name for the wild. So yeah, for the, for those who haven't seen the essay uh, just lately, that etymology is uh, goes to one of his keywords, which is to saunter. Saunter, right? So yeah, so he he speaks that it's uh, going a la saunter to the holy land, um, and that sense that that it's a pilgrimage. It isn't just a stroll, but there's something very uh, intentional, and and I think you're right, transgressive. It's what he like to call cross lot walking. He's going across lots or across boundaries, and that's why there's In fact, even kind even of traces it uh, to being out of sight of land completely. Yeah, yeah, and the danger, very real danger, that you'll be lost. Um, that <laughs> right. You, that you need to be prepared to get truly lost, as he says somewhere. Not until you're truly lost uh, can you find out where you are and the extent of your relations. So there's. Yeah, so to start out with a sense of walking and the sauntering in the Holy Land, um, it's not a kind of destination-driven pilgrimage, like I know right where I'm going and I'm going to be there in 20 days, but a kind of I'm going to start out and I don't know where this is going to take me, the Uh, risk to it. The thing about the etymology also struck me is is making it a kind of um, foundational document it's like a lot of the early historians, um, Plutarch comes to mind, um, kind of turned to etymology to explain certain practices and, and habits and, and beliefs. And it's also true of the German, you know, Herder and the German thinkers who, who were so influential in, in American transcendentalism. So it's like by mm-hmm. starting out that way, he, in a sense, frames the document as a kind of, or frames walking as a kind of, you know, foundational document of some sort, which, which you know, it isn't clear at this point what it might be, but, but I, for one, take as a kind of statement about nationalism. Well, yeah, I think the uh, sense that he worked on it for so long, again, this was, he, he was developing this as a very important statement, something that uh, wasn't just an add-on to other things he wrote, but um, an independent and really central uh, statement for him. And yeah, I think uh, the sense of, you know, why lean so hard on a word? It it is a fanciful etymology to sauntering, but the sense of the wisdom of words, that the common words that we use and don't think about have this, this, you know, immense history history to them. Yeah. Yeah. And, And we shut our eyes to that history. Well, we've shut our eyes to who we are as human beings, as language users, but also as as a people who speak a language, a given, you know, English in this case, 
And so to recover that is to recover a sense of, of who we are and our past and how we got to where we are and to exactly. do that through art, um, <laughs> to make us aware, reflective. Yeah. Right. Yep. So the sense that walking comes with, with these, what, the, the, it's the sauntering, and, and he despairs, he says, what would become of us if we took our walks? In a mall, right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I wonder if he—I wonder if he could—if he could conceive of the idea that one could walk through a mall and somehow think of it as a wild. I doubt it. Well, I guess. I—I'm I, not sure he could. Although some of his walks through the heart of uh, Concord um, uh, sounds wild, and they're actually uh, yeah. I mean, when he's walking down the street and noticing the leaves turning and stuff, that's that's a really town-oriented image, but he's definitely seeing it as a wild. Well, he can even do that when he's overhearing. Uh, uh, one thing I've noticed in reading his journals, he he notices his neighbors, uh, um, the sounds that are coming out of their kitchens or the sound of somebody singing or playing a musical instrument. And it's like birds singing. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. just as interesting to him as what we would think of as wild. So it's it's a kind of, um, you know, he's turning the sense of the wild inside out to include uh, Concord. And there's even a lovely moment when he's talking about how he how he likes to go to Boston, which he did frequently. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. He, he always goes down, the first thing he does is to the end of the Long Wharf and look out at the ships uh, going out to sea. And again, it's a kind of turning a Boston inside out. Um, we yeah, think of it uh, as a city, but he's thinking of it as a port and an ocean and a kind of global, cosmopolitan, wild space of the world. Yeah, Melville does the same thing in uh, in the opening of Moby Dick where he talks about people heading to the shore and kind of looking longingly out at the river and even farther right. out, to, out to the ocean. That's exactly what Thoreau does, yeah, where he's imagining himself as a, you know, so that would make him a kind of Ishmael. Yeah, that, so, that, he is. He is so, definitely so a that, wanderer. Well, and, and that leads to that sense of the wild as... Um, Again, one of these keywords that's at least as as large and diverse, multifarious as, as walking, hard to pin down quickly. Really um, hard. But but a, a, a fascinating concept. And so, if we could um, maybe uh, could could you say something about? Um, well, I, I think we. Is, we is both... there a way to say what he means by the wild uh, in, in brief, or? Well, I don't know about in brief, but. Um, <laughs> Um, I I think we both sort of discussed how it needs to be distinguished from the wilderness. And I guess the way I distinguish it is by saying that when Thoreau first encountered something approximating the wilderness in Maine on his first trip to Maine, he -hmm. he basically was so taken aback by it that he spent the rest of his life um, inventing the wild. Um, I, I don't think he was afraid of, wilder, of the wilderness, as you know, some people have said, like that. It's, you know, he was just so frightened being on the top of, of Mount Katahdin that somehow it just threw him yeah. for a loop. I don't, I don't buy that. But I do think that he found it so raw and what he called unhandled, and and what he later in Chessencook called um, simple to the point of barrenness, that mm. basically his language failed him um, <laughs> once he encountered the wilderness. Um, when he's on the top of Katahdin, he's basically just trotting out one poetic cliche after another, uh, pretty much taken from Greek literature and even more directly Mm -hmm. from from Milton's Paradise Lost. 
um, always formulating what he's experiencing in a kind of convention. Yeah, uh, in a, bar- in a like borrowed through the available conventions. Yeah, yeah, in a, in a borrowed language. That's right. But then yeah. when he's on his way down from the summit, he, he has that uh, you know that epiphany where he cries out, "Think of our life and nature," and 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 expresses this really ardent and overwhelming desire to daily be shown matter. And I think that's yeah. that's the turning point. Because the main thing about that, the main way I think of the wild, well, two ways. Uh, one is that it's basically a science-based aesthetic. It's not a poetic-based aesthetic as such. It's a sort of combination of, of um, poetry and science that, mm-hmm. in his own words, allowed him to sort of see things more exactly as they are. I mean, that was, that was pretty much the subject of your book, Seeing New Worlds. Um, and, you know, it, it, it was basically that he began to concentrate much more on scientific nomenclature and the very idea of, of sort of empirical observation. So that, well, that yeah. allowed him to dispense with those poetic conceits and substitute a more precise language. Or going back to something you said uh, earlier about the fact book and the poetry book, and it's the both and, and he's, and he's trying to hold them together and say, why do these need to be two things? Uh, can we sort of toggle back and forth, or can we finally get to the point where we see the two things are one thing? Well, I think and he's so beginning to ask that. Poetry, yeah, the empirical uh, uh, fact and the kind of spiritual uh, epiphany uh, can, can happen simultaneously. I, I mean, if you, the moment when he has it, and you're right, he's not at the top of the mountain. I think this is interesting. He's yeah, me too. I always found that really it. interesting. Yeah, and it's it's when it's you know his back is behind. He's coming down the mountain, and it's starting to hit him. What's just been happening to him, and that's when he says, you know, talk of mysteries, think of our life in nature daily to be shown matter to come in contact with it, rocks. Trees, wind on our cheeks, the solid earth, the actual world. You know, that, that sense of, you know, rocks, trees, wind on our cheeks, and it's the specific material objects. It's almost as if he's coming to his senses. It's coming through his senses, and so he's coming to his senses. Coming to his senses, yeah, contact. Right. Through the senses, right, contact, contact. So the great question, who are we, where are we, um, to, to address them as if you can answer them, no, but at least you, you face them and think about them, think with them, is to think about you know, how does language connect us to or, or help us to grasp um, objects, things, rocks, wind, um, trees, and and so science becomes a very necessary way to to do this in its particularity and its materiality. I think um, I think a really important part of the science side of this is that um, Thoreau kind of rediscovered a Platonic view of beauty, uh, which was that beauty is appropriate or that which most perfectly fulfills its purpose. You know, mm-hmm. a kind of early version of form follows function and, and something that's really become important to modern ecological thought because it's, it's like he came to see grasses and swamps and sandbanks and stuff like that as beautiful, at least in part because they, they perfectly fit a kind of ecological niche. You know, they mm-hmm. were, they were grass-like or swamp-like or melting sandbank-like. Um, 
But that was an approach that would have seemed ludicrous to anyone who, who hadn't studied botany or geology or something like that. It took a concentrated interest in science for him to even see these things in the first place and then to see them as beautiful. Um, well, but yeah, that was a really it, it, radical jump, you know, and nobody else at the time was, had made that jump. That's really very interesting because, of course, it's the, you know, we we think of, um, we, we went back to the, the notion of the wild versus wilderness, and his most famous quotation from this essay is, in wildness is the preservation of, of the, the world. world. Yeah. And, uh, and it's often misquoted as in wilderness, yep. the preservation of the world. And, you know, it's an interesting slip uh, because I think we tend to think of wilderness as a kind of, you know, you go to the wilderness and then you leave it behind. It's it's where we are not, right? So it's often conceived as being not human. Well, and not human the way he felt when he was on the top right. of Mount Katahdin, which was, you know, it was the lack of humanity that, you know, gave him something to, to really think about. And so, of course, you wouldn't live there. You would leave it, and where he literally was living at that moment was Walden Pond, so he, there's this contrast with, and he's writing Walden, so he comes back to the pond, and this is this kind of space between, you know, it's... it's yeah, another it's, interval. What is that? Yeah, another interval, right. So that the the sense of where you are if you live in the wild... Well, you never leave the wild behind. It's always with you. Right. And, yeah, and really that, important, really important point. Right. Yeah. And so uh, the sense then of, well, if it's with you everywhere, it isn't these spectacular, sublime, oh my gosh, you know, beautiful, uh, scenic. This places, is often very, very far away, but right out your window, or maybe maybe right on your you know kitchen table, or or you know right. The, the the rafters of your right. home. It's really important to compare his, uh, or really revealing, to compare his writing to, to Muir, who said how much, John Muir, who said how much he mm-hmm. loved Thoreau, but his mm-hmm. writing is almost entirely about the sublime. You know, he, he picks the top yeah. of mountains and, and picks the, you know, the most thunderous or glorious weather, and, and that's what he chooses to describe, which sort of puts him in league with with all the kind of famous American landscape painters like, you know, uh, Thomas Cole, Thomas Moran, Frederick right, Church. Right, right. So he's, he's trafficking, painting. yeah, he's trafficking in a much more conventional uh, aesthetic. Thoreau just sort of threw all that out the window and said, look, let's look at what our, uh, let's look at what's at our feet. And, you know, maybe you haven't seen it as worthy, but I do, <laughs> you know, right, and right. he then made others see it as worthy. Well, so then his celebration of the swamp, right? And this is, he's in a very swampy environment. In yeah, I yeah, I think the and, swamp and, is a really important thing. Yeah, and to, of course, to farmers and to people who are, you know, trying to make something of the land, the swamp is really annoying. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, that guy swimming, a guy swimming for his life in the swamp. Right, right, and and that you know you 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 are sinking down in this this um, uh, struggling to to get out of this swampiness that that wants to engulf you and, and nullify all your purposes, and Thoreau relishes this and and retrieves the swamp and tries to, 
um, and, and it's true. He's exhilarated when when he spends a day. Um, Emerson has swamping him through it. Yep, is swamping through it. Yeah, Zorro would literally uh, wade into them and and just stay there for hours up to his you know neck apparently. Yeah, and yeah. Emerson thought yeah. this was ridiculous. Yeah, so he did. <laughs> who, who wants to you know? Not you can write about a swamp, but my gosh, Henry, um, wants to be in it. <laughs> <laughs> who would want to be in it? And and so he's truly taking this, um, you know, this this notion of contact, all your senses, you know. So so it's not just the common as uh, something to look at aesthetically, like it's over there and I admire it. But no, right. I've got to jump into it and you know taste. And that's, it. And that's how we understand things. Yeah, yeah, smell it and, and really, right. yeah, it, inhabit it. Um, I, I think that swamp is like particularly important because it, it sort of, it has such a vast array of associations, you know? It's like, I mean, the swamp is really important during the Revolutionary War because Americans often fought guerrilla warfare from swamps. You know, you can think of Francis Marion, the swamp fox. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. The swamp uh, and then like Jackson won one of the most important battles of the War of 1812 in the swamps of the Mississippi Delta. Um, there's, there's a kind of local knowledge aspect there, isn't it? Yeah, it, that's it, true. You know, we we locals would know how to navigate this space, but but this becomes ours, and of course, you right. know, this becomes um, uh, how we can defeat you. You don't have the local <laughs> knowledge that we do, right. which made it very uh, anti-British, which was part of this thing yeah. of kind of perfecting Anglo-Americanism. The the other really kind of interesting thing about swamp is it it made a connection to slavery because. Um, remember in the essay refers to how he likes to retreat to what the citizen would normally call the dismal swamp. So that, that uh, creates this mm-hmm. image of the great dismal swamp that's on the border between Virginia and North Carolina, which was where a lot of runaway slaves went and, and this right. whole maroon society developed. So he's also using it as a sort of rebuke in that sense to those who would who would see manifest destiny as a kind of glorification of the of the nation's sort of moral authority. He's saying, No, mm-hmm. wait a minute. The swamp is yeah, more yeah. where we are at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> that's something else that sort of gets uh, sinks and gets bogged down in the swamp. And, yep. and that leads to another you know, the third uh sort of keyword. So we've got walking as the title and then the wild and then of course west and right. um he he um, opens this whole segment of the essay by saying that the West is another name for the wild, or or more precisely, he says the West of which I speak. That qualifier is yeah. another name for the wild. So of course we think West, and we think of those sublime landscapes which we mentioned a few moments ago, and we think of overwhelmingly of manifest destiny. And of course, some have questioned. Thoreau's interest in manifest destiny, the sense of the course of empire and the future of the U.S. Uh, nation is westward, walking to Oregon, his yep. participation in this great American conquest of, of the continent. How do you read all that? Well, I think that he, when he talks about walking to Oregon instead of east to Europe, I think he's, he's basically evoking that tradition of uh, translatio studi, which was that kind of medieval doctrine that civilization progressed as it moved from east to west and and through time. So I think he was he was sort of mentioning it, but not necessarily endorsing it. I think it's really important to understand that that walking was written right after the Compromise of 1850, where you know the U.S. was trying to um, 
kind of figure out what to do with all the territory it had acquired after the uh, U.S.-Mexican War. And the Compromise of 1850 was a re- really, nobody liked it. North, nobody, north or south liked it. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> and it was also the occasion of um, William Seward's higher law speech, mm-hmm. um, which I think Thoreau evokes throughout walking indirectly, you know, when he talks about a higher sense or a higher knowledge, yeah. and, and also, m- most importantly, when he climbs to the top, elevates himself and climbs to the top of the white pine to, to, where he finds that the, re- the red flower, which he brings back. I think all of that is a sort of indirect reference to, to Seward's speech. So that in itself is an indication that he's not for manifest destiny. Remember when he begins civil disobedience with by quoting the model of that government is best which governs least? Right. That's that's on the masthead of the United States Magazine and Democratic Review, which was a, a kind of more or less official organ of, of those who were advocating manifest destiny. Mm-hmm. I think that by quoting that, he was actually quoting it as, as a kind of reprimand, um, a reminder that those who would say that were actually you know, operating against her principles by so relentlessly pursuing Manifest Destiny, especially since it involved the army and the killing of people and, you know, just, and it was supposed to, you know, there was there was some doubt whether or not Manifest Destiny would lead to, to more slavery or less slavery. So that in itself is a kind of issue. Also, yeah. uh, one other thing, I think that that, remember in the essay I talk about how I, he was sort of linking that farmer we talked about but, and, and the implements of farming to, to weapons of war. Again, quite a quite an interesting paragraph, yeah, where he, um, let's see, I think, uh, yeah, he speaks, the weapons with which we have gained our most important victories are not the sword and the lance, weapons of war, right? But yep. the bushwhack, the turf cutter, the spade, and the bog hoe. Rusted with the blood of many a meadow, and begrimed with the dust of many a hard-fought field. So to me, that's pretty much a reference to the war. war. <laughs> well, it's surprising. Yeah, um, I think that that probably, was also taken from. He was indirectly referring to one of Virgil's eclogues or something. Um, so he was taking it from a pastoral tradition and turning it on, turning it on its head. So, which makes it even more reason to believe that it was. He was opposing the idea that that farming was was a sort of, or, or that farming should be anyway, a, a kind of arm of manifest destiny. That that in moving west, farmers would somehow settle the west and make it better. Well, there's an interesting. I mean, here's another case of the kind of both end problem, isn't there? I mean, he's he can't say do away with agriculture because although he's I don't think he believes that it should be. Well, he's fascinated by agriculture. Yeah. At first, he loved Virgil's eclogues. And, you know, he's fascinated with the lives of his neighbors who are farmers, largely, and studies them and and talks to them. And I think really um, uh, enjoys watching the seasonal progression as farmers uh, are, you know, they're putting the cows out to pasture. Now they're cutting the the meadow, uh, the hay in the meadows. Yeah. Um, He he works for them, uh, works with them their friends so that sense that that we need agriculture but how, but what would be the right kind of agriculture to uh sustain a true uh again coming to the notion of the uh the, the glorious nation the best possible nation that 
he can imagine but has never seen anywhere. Right. Um, That's the individual experience, right. What role? So you cannot dismiss agriculture. What role? It's really a question about how do we live on the land? And, and of course, that has just opened up a huge set of questions. But I think his study of his neighbors is often asking about their farming practices. Uh, I would say so, too. What is the best way to be doing this? And there are destructive ways. And, the, the again, re- the language about redeeming the meadow. Some land must be cultivated. But then he qualifies that very quickly and says, I wouldn't have all land to be cultivated. Right. Um, the better part of it needs to be wild. So where when do you he gives with the one hand, he takes away with the other. Right, right, right. It drives people nuts because they, you know, you want a clear, unambiguous, all one step. Never happened. No, you, you, yeah, you have to have agriculture, and the farmer is part of this. So what is probably but not too much of it? But not too much of it because you've got to have the better part uh, remaining wild right. for all which these, means, these which reasons. Which means you can't use farming as a justification for taking over the world. Right. And, of course, um, you know, the sense of West as identifying both an actual political problem, which he's protesting in various places, um, uh, most spectacularly in civil disobedience, but then a kind of West of the imagination when he speaks of, if you look at where his house was, he says he turns West whenever he wants to take a walk. And if you look at where his house was, to turn west from his front door was literally to walk away from... Way, away from town. Right. Yeah. Yeah, two so gates. He, had two he gates. didn't want to walk through town to go where right. he, he was going. But, of course, right. he's walking. You know, Yes, he's walking west some of the times. And, of course, that's up into the hills. And he loves those uplands. But um, feels like he's kind of almost like the foothills of the Rockies or something. Yeah, <laughs> well, this capacity to imagine himself other places is pretty. Amazing. He loves to. Yeah, he'll he'll see a sand dune and he says, "Now yep. I'm at the ocean shore." Um, yep. So, but of course, he also walks um, to to Walden Pond, was was uh, southeast, and he walks north to Esterbrook Woods, and right. he's walking in many directions. So clearly, when he says that, he's, well, he's playing with this. West as a literal direction, but also the kind of uh, a metaphorical thing, what which is mean? which is why the the West along the wild and walking are basically these linguistic constructions where he's sort of creating a kind of dense network of associations, all of yeah. which are mediated by his language. And some of that language, I want to introduce the the concept of beauty here, and and then uh, I've got one more thing I want to ask you. So some of this language is just unabashedly beautiful, and I think the role of beauty um, is just crucial. It's throughout Thoreau, but in this um, essay, um, very, very much so. And so... There, there's one point um, where he speaks of this, and he's troubled that our human relationship, uh, too many of us are not attracted to what he calls nature, and he says that we do not have often enough a beautiful relation to nature. Um, so he follows by saying we uh, how little appreciation of the beauty of the landscape there is among us 
granted, he's talking about very lowly common landscapes, right. uh, so our common landscape. And then um, uh, con- uh, protests, we have to be told that the Greeks called the world cosmos beauty or order, but we don't see why they did so. So that sense of the, the world is beauty, and that's what we don't see. And so on the one hand, it's a perception the immersion in the sensu- the sensual uh, facts of this this beautiful world, but then of course it's the language that we use um, to bespeak this beauty, and so his own language can be very beautiful as a way of invoking it. Um, and I don't know if you have anything to add to that. Uh, uh, well, but where I, I, where I want to go is to the end of this essay. So. <laughs> well, what I, okay. I, I might be able to provide that. Um, Kant once said that um, a kind of alertness or appreciation of natural beauty is a sign that you have a kind of moral um, attitude towards life. Um, and I think, you know, I think Thoreau would ag- agree with that. And, you know, Donald Worcester uh, mm-hmm. wrote something recently where he said there's there, a fairly exact correlation has been established between um, countries which um, protect nature and at the same time have fairly high standard of political freedom and social equality. So there's there's a an empirical basis for that for that observation. He does uh, say in his journal, Thoreau does, uh, the perception of beauty is a moral test. Which right, is and I think that comes right out of yeah. Kant. I, I'd say that comes right oh, out of Kant. Okay, yeah. Well, the moment I have in mind, and uh, this is my final question here, um, is the very end of walking, um, where he ends, we've spoken of West and that sense of futurity, but of course, yep. to, to go West is, and to follow what he calls the sun, the great Western pioneer, uh, West is to go towards sunset. And Walden closes with the Yeah, with the morning star. As, yeah, uh, the sun is but a morning star. So, so it ends with that invocation of the dawn. And yet this essay, Walking, ends uh, with Thoreau um, uh, in sunset. And he has this absolutely beautiful description of this pure and bright light gilding the withered grass and leaves so softly and serenely bright. Uh, sorry, so softly and serenely bright. Um the west side of every wood and rising ground gleamed like the boundary of Elysium, and the sun on our back seemed like a gentle herdsman driving us home at evening. So we saunter toward the Holy Land till one day the sun shall shine more brightly than ever he has done, um, shall perchance per- shine into our minds and hearts and light up our whole lives with a great awakening light as warm and serene and golden as on a bank side in autumn. End of essay. So there we have, yeah, the end on sunset, on autumn, on this, it, it's very striking that he And as usual, not, very contradictory. Well, yes, uh, you know, uh, autumn, associations right. of death and decline uh, and decay and senescence and fall. And it's unexpected. Um, and yet, in in your thinking about it, you have a very interesting thought about um, uh, again the whole essay as a um, 
uh, a statement on nationhood and national culture, that what he's reaching for is this kind of utopian imagination of an America that rises by falling, which would mean this ending of this essay is about that, this notion of um, we, we need to rise by falling. Um, so that's my last question to you. Can you explain that? Well, I, I, took, the, I took that idea from an, an essay um, the land artist Robert Smithson wrote. It was called A, a Tour of the Monuments of Passaic, New Jersey. And he kind of stumbled on this highway project halfway through it. And it occurred to him that he was actually watching something that was rising into ruin before it was even built. And he kind of took that as a, a sort of clever reversal of the romantic idea of things falling into ruin. Mm. Um, and it seemed to seemed to express his obsession with entropy. He was really, really obsessed by entropy. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought, well, if you think about it a different way, if you think about it the way Thoreau think, might think about it if he were exposed to something like that, um, it actually could be seen as something like Condorcet's um, notion of indefinite perfectibility, which is a kind of upward renewal of things. Um, but that that Thoreau himself kind of traced to to the natural process of decay. Um, mm-hmm. um, you know, as he says, as he says at another point in in, in walking, um, the civilized nations—Greece, Rome, England—have been sustained by the primitive forests, which anciently rotted where they stand. I guess I'd say this is another way of saying that the greatness of any nation derived from the from the natural decay it was built on. Uh, and and about, again, it's natural decay, a kind right, of natural decay. Concept. Yes, um, and like and compost. Uh, uh, compost, that's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, so but there's another way of feared and avoided, but we're back to the swamp again as a kind of yep, life. Exactly. He says this is the most sacred place in nature is the swamp. Right. And that's another way of saying what you've just said is is you know we we need that at our heart in order to be strong. Which is very right, but he, but he also he also would argue, yeah, we need that at our heart. But see, I think he def- he defined the kind of nation that he had in mind as a nation who saw its principal problem not being the need to occupy the West or whether or not the nation was moving too fast or too slowly, but basically the idea that it needed to preserve nature. He wanted to see a public. I think he he probably saw it existing at a at a local level first and then maybe national level um a public that defined itself as a public by sort of its understanding that it needed to preserve nature because otherwise how would it have a life in nature which which was what he was advocating so I think you saw the United States with all its kind of you know, expanses of rotting forests and all the rest of it as being having the potential to be the greatest nation. But only if it, as he says, preserves a mold against its distant future. So I guess I saw that as being his notion of somehow needing to rise by falling. And that sense that that it is a common process that we turn our backs on it, but it is a part of every uh, our, our daily experience, um, and that must be built into the foundational structure of what we imagine as a as a nation. What pulls us together? 
I'm not so sure he saw it as, as being built in. I think he saw it, which is why I think Watkins is sort of utopian thing. I think he saw it as needing to be built in. Okay. Because that's, right, there's the element, again, the sauntering to the Holy Land, to go back to the opening, is something to achieve and strive right, for. Right, exactly. This is hard, you know, it's it's hard spiritual work and discipline. You don't get there by just saying, okay, I'm out the door. It, it takes, <laughs> uh, yeah, it takes um, an effort of, of mind and heart and will. And um, It also takes an effort to self-identify as someone that's important to. That leads to another question of who that would be, and I think clearly the kind of poet that Thoreau is trying to model, which would say that this is a work of poetry, this this essay. Um, and I know we need to be closing here, but um, the sense that you have, um, you've written that purely imaginary and poetic walking is one of the most unreasonable and utopian maps in American history, which I think is a lovely way to say, well, tell us what to do, Henry. <laughs> uh, Thoreau is saying, I can't, but I can hold out this unreasonable and utopian map to to a future that you need to imagine. Discover um, for and, yourself. And discover for yourself, right. Um, and that's the only way that it's going to come into being, this most glorious nation, which I have imagined but have never seen. Right. Okay, I think we've okay. reached a conclusion. Okay. Thank you so much, Andrew. I, I enjoyed this uh, uh, very much. Uh, I think we could go on forever. I think we could. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening to this podcast, which is brought to you by the New England Quarterly. For more information about the journal, or to subscribe at a special listeners-only 20% discount, visit mitpressjournals.org slash neq and enter the discount code... T-N-E-Q-E-P-2-3. That's T-N-E-Q-E-P-2-3 at checkout.